Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with two very special guests, Brad Hargraves of Common and Zach Arend of Metaprop. Guys, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Awesome. Why don't we start with you, Zach? Can you give a brief overview of Metaprop, of what it is and how it came to be? Sure. Uh, Metaprop is a real estate technology-focused venture capital firm. Um, We're now investing out of our second fund. We also run accelerator programs for a small group of the companies that we invest in. And uh, the company has been around since 2015, but I've been an angel investor in this space and a real estate developer for about a decade. And that's how I met Brad. I was actually an angel investor in first round of financing. Common did. Um, we became friends and loved to collaborate on podcasts together. <laughs> awesome. And, and Brad, why don't you talk a bit about your background and interest uh, in the space before with General Assembly and, and now with uh, what you're up to at Common? Yeah, absolutely. I started Common three years ago, uh, really to address the needs of the 75 million Americans who share a house or apartment with someone they're not related to. Prior to this, I was the co-founder of General Assembly. You may know it as a school that teaches tech business and design, um, really preparing people for jobs in those fields. And while I was at General Assembly, we really saw that so many of not just our students, but also our instructors and our employees, people pretty far into their careers, you know, working professionals lived with roommates. And when they would move to a new city, uh, they wouldn't look for an apartment, they would look for a room on Craigslist. And they would often find themselves in roommate situations in apartments that one, weren't designed with roommates in mind, and also weren't operated for the needs of people sharing an apartment with a non-family. So we started Common to be thoughtful about not just the design, but also the operations. And today we are the largest co-living flag and operator in the United States. We manage 22 buildings across six cities. And uh, I wasn't lucky enough to be, a, to be an investor in Common, but I did tell my, my cousin to go work there, and, and she still works there. And that's the uh, investor equivalent of if you can't beat them, join them. Yeah, it's best. We that's awesome. We um, you know, we actually have a couple of uh investor family members who work at Common in a totally not nepotistic way. Yes, <laughs> um, they just happen to be be the right people for those uh, those roles. And uh, Lior is on our community team, and uh, she is uh, she's an awesome part of that team. Totally, totally. Zach, so why don't we give an overview of when we look at the the prop tech space? Can you sort of give a market map as to what are the different you know, sub segments that make up the the space? Because I don't think most venture capitalists or, or, or entrepreneurs are, are that familiar with how big a, big a space it is and how, you know, how much greenfield there is to build companies in the space. Yeah, it's, it's certainly a big space. When we were talking about creating a sector-specific vehicle for the space, people thought we were crazy and that it was way too small. And now, if you look at globally venture capital dollars, there are tens of billions of dollars flowing into the sector of venture capital right now that is is going into the sector. And it doesn't look like that trend is abating. It looks like that trend is actually accelerating. So 
I don't know if that could still be called a niche if a space can can actually receive that amount of funding. So we've seen sort of an explosion of awareness about it and the potential for it since we started the firm in 2015. We slice and dice the market based on asset type. So we look at technology for, you know, Brad's context, sort of multifamily would be the asset type, although he's looking to spin multifamily a little differently than what's happened traditionally. Another asset type would be office, another would be retail, another would be industrial, single family, hotel, et cetera, et cetera. So we look to back technologies that are enabling the professionals who manage, lease, construct those assets to do their job faster, better, cheaper. But on the other end, we're also backing technologies that are looking to automate processes using artificial intelligence, natural language processing, tools like that to actually, we're either going to help you do your job better or we're going to try and take your job. And we don't know which one's going to win sector by sector, but we would like to enable both of those trends and accelerate both of those trends. And it's certainly, in our opinion, not going to be a winner take all. You're going to have a future in real estate where a lot of the processes that are, that are human run today are automated, but that future, in our opinion, will also rely heavily on humans using software solutions, hardware solutions to help do their jobs faster, better, cheaper, and, and make themselves more efficient. So, so we talk about one way to slice the market is by, by asset type, but in sort of within a, a, one of those individual assets, what are the different types of companies that you've backed or that, that you would, like, what, what, what do they look like within an individual asset type? And, and it, are those typically, can you then apply those then same types of companies to different asset types? It, that's a great question. It depends on what type of technology it is. So let me give you an example. Uh, one category we look at is leasing. Commercial leasing is very different than residential leasing. So the answer, can you port something over? My short answer would be no. My longer answer would be yes, but it would take a really long time to perfect your software. So we would look at a category like leasing, and we would say we want exposure to a technology company that's helping make the commercial leasing process faster, better, cheaper, something also that's going to help the residential leasing process. And then we sort of lather, rinse, repeat with every single category. Property management's another category. Construction's another category. Mortgage financing's another category. Title insurance might be another category. Surveying might be another category. So everything that touches a real estate transaction of any asset type, we say from dirt to disposition of the asset, we want to be at each point enabling technology solutions. Yeah, just just to build on that, there are relatively few prop tech companies, even the largest prop tech companies, that Ban residential and commercial, uh, and and there are some some pretty you know clear reasons why that is, and then some less obvious reasons why that is. Residential and commercial really work almost as separate industries. You have different players, you have different standards, different challenges, and so there there's in some ways not a lot of benefit you can take from one asset class into the other. And you even look at a company like WeWork that has started and been tremendously successful in commercial, has really struggled to bridge into residential and, and, and build a apartment product. 
and you really have to get pretty abstracted out. Think at the level of, you know, the financing platforms, the crowdfunding sites to get to prop tech companies that are successful in both the residential and commercial sides. Yeah. Let's talk about WeWork for, for a second. There's a world in which WeWork doesn't expand beyond the, the area in which it's you know, done tremendously well. And then there's another world in which people are scared to build prop tech companies because it's almost like building an e-commerce company. Amazon's just going to kill you or and they just have an unfair advantage. What would lead to either WeWork having a dominating position across categories or where WeWork just you know, staying in its lane and owning and dominating what it, what it currently does? Real estate fundamentally is going to, because it's tied to physical assets, you can never have the market dominance that Amazon has in, say, e-commerce, um, just because it takes so long. I think even with the explosive growth of WeWork and their competitors, that still represents a tiny morsel of the overall office market globally. That's part of what is so attractive about PropTech, but also part of what's so challenging about it is if you, a lot of people like to compare PropTech to FinTech and say, okay, we're about, let's say seven years behind where FinTech is. The problem with that is if you get the top 10 players as customers in finance, you own something like 95% of the market. If you got the top 10 players in real estate globally, you would own something like 0.5% of the market. So, <laughs> I, I think someone said something, you know, one of the biggest just myths that I was told very often as an entrepreneur coming into real estate is that, oh, you just have to like build relationships with the, you know, the biggest groups and they control so much. And that just couldn't be further from the truth. This is an incredibly fragmented business residential in particular, uh, that so much of the market is owned by the incredibly long tail. And that's not to say certain brands, certain owners don't have weight where doing a deal with a particular owner is going to be a positive signal in the market. It's going to make others kind of more willing to do deals with you. But it's a wildly fragmented space and makes me skeptical that you will ever have, you know, kind of one player that really dominates across categories or frankly, even within one category to the extent that Amazon dominates in e-commerce. Zach, you had this phrase earlier, like, which was from dirt to, to disposition. Can you talk about some of this, the in-between steps and, and maybe give examples of, you know, we talk about WeWork, but other enormous companies or unicorns that have emerged from sort of different sub-segments, you know, from dirt to disposition? Yeah. I mean, we don't have a ton of unicorns yet in this space, but if you look at the earliest technologies that proliferated in real estate, they were really about controlling, managing your, your, your property. And those are called property management systems. And those are companies, first ever prop tech company, was J.D. Edwards, which launched the first ever ERP solution for the enterprise uh, back in the 1970s. And that was fundamentally an accounting tool. And the biggest companies in the space are still fundamentally at their core. They've gotten into other spaces, but uh, accounting tools. And then the other biggest companies are data and analysis tools, right? So platform like a Yardi or an MRI or an Appfolio, 
that's going to help you manage your property once it's built. But then the data platforms that have grown quite large companies like CoStar, companies like Argus, those are really there to help you make more informed decisions about buying an asset or selling an asset or leasing within that asset. Those are, those are fundamental. You know, the most important, if you can't, the, the best real estate investors are just lucky. They just time markets really well. And maybe that's talent, maybe that's luck. But the true value, in my opinion, in the real estate business on the commercial side is created through better leasing. So any tool that can help you, whether it's helping you through a leasing process, like what BTS does, or helping you with leasing data, uh, like Comstack would do, or like a CoStar would do. Those are fundamentally very important technology tools along that value chain from dirt to disposition. And we're starting to see, they haven't become unicorns yet, but we're starting to see other parts of the value chain create companies that that are doing sort of what CoStar did when it first launched or what Yardy RMI did with it to, to their own little category. And that can be in financing, that can be in the transaction itself. You know, real estate on the commercial side at least in 2019 is still a, a, a business that's based on wet signatures, pen paper facts. So 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 there's still a lot of white space along that value chain and, and then also in architecture and construction as well, which is, you know, if, if you can, if you can learn how to build a beautiful building more cheaply, you, you are going to be very advantaged vis-a-vis your competitors in the real estate business. So we're seeing huge amounts of investment and activity come into construction and architecture tech right now. Most notably recently, you saw Autodesk, which is sort of the biggest player in the space, spend a billion dollars acquiring two companies in two months. One was PlanGrid, which takes construction processes on the job site and puts them on your iPad. And the other was Building Connected, which takes the bidding process, which is another, the, the, the initial part of the construction process, and puts that on your laptop, phone, iPad as well. I was lucky enough to actually be an angel in Building Connected. But uh, you're starting to see, hopefully, unicorns creating these other parts of the value chain as well. And, and when we think about you know, big startups in the last you know, decade, 15 years in the space, you know, ones that come to mind for me, you know, Zillow, Trulia, you know, General Assembly, Redfin, you know, uh, now Opendoor. And I, I guess I'm curious, what sort of, what has been the interplay between startups and incumbent in prop tech and real estate over the last, you know, decade plus? And, and how has that evolved over time? Or how has the structure of the market enabled more startups to participate over time, if that is indeed the case? Yeah, I mean, we've been lucky that a lot of the big players who became public in sort of Web 1.0 became very acquisitive very early on and continue to acquire voraciously. If you look at a company like RealPage, um, which is a $4 billion publicly traded property management system, if you look at their senior team, the vast majority of them were acquired from other companies. They actually buy about 10 companies per year. And then on the residential side, Zillow has obviously been very acquisitive as well. You know, they bought Trulia, they bought Dotloop, they bought Hotpads, et cetera, et cetera. They bought Street Easy, they bought Naked Apartments. So we like that it's a healthy M&A environment. We also have new entrants into that M&A environment, like traditional technology companies like Oracle. And then you also have traditional real estate companies like CBRE and JLL starting to purchase technology companies. So 
So we're pretty excited about the, the M&A landscape as it's not just the large digital incumbents anymore that, that are available to purchase startups. It's, 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 a, it's a much bigger buyer universe, also includes private equity at this point as well. Yeah, I, I think one thing that's, that's, that's been exciting from my vantage point is many of the, the more traditional real estate companies getting involved on the M&A side, as well as the investment side too. And you've even go, gone so far as to see you know, companies like Brookfield create dedicated investment vehicles that have done some, some pretty interesting prop tech investments, as well as startups primarily raised from uh, real estate strategics as a financing strategy, almost as an alternative or a, or a supplement to venture dollars. There's risk to that, you know, in signaling risk and market risk, but I think it's been an interesting trend and very positive for the prop tech landscape as a whole. Yeah, totally. How big do you value, do you value the, the prop tech landscape just generally, Zach? Like how much is that? Billions, hundreds of billions, trillion? Because real estate is a whole trillion. Like how big is prop tech? Well, if you answer that by saying software is truly eating the world, including the built world as well, which I half believe in half is tongue in cheek, then you know you have a fifteen trillion dollar asset class as prop tech. Let's assume that's not the case, though, and I think it's it's safe to assume that prop tech could certainly be ten percent of that, right? And ten percent of fifteen trillion. I wasn't a math major in college, but I believe it's one and a half trillion. So that's a sizable total addressable market for my forty million dollar fund to be allocated to. Well, why do you say it t- tongue in cheek? Is it not self-evident that software will eat the built world or, or what sort of the interplay there? Well, it, it can't because it, it is the built world. So in the way the Amazon example you gave, it, it will never be all about technology in this industry. It's always going to be all about brick and mortar physical assets. But I do believe, and I've staked my entire net worth and career on it, <laughs> that technology will become so important and so intrinsically tied to it that the term prop tech won't even exist in 20 years. It's just going to be real estate. And the the differences between a venture capital investor and a property investor are going to blur. And new types of vehicles, and we're thinking about this all the time at Metaprop, new types of investing vehicles are going to have to be created to properly match risk return profiles and assumptions for people looking to invest in property and then looking to invest in technology operating businesses, right? Like if you wanted to make an investment with Brad, you can invest in Brad's company or you can invest in a building and then hire Brad to run it for you, right? But currently there doesn't exist to my knowledge a type of investment firm that utilizes outside capital and is able to nimbly do both of those things. And so I believe for our industry to really blossom to its fullest, we're going to need new types of investment vehicles to tackle the, the inherent challenges and issues associated with the fact that real estate is fundamentally a physical business. Is Metaprop an example of a new type of vehicle or or unpack more what, what that could look like? Mm -hmm. I mean, Metaprop is thinking about 
how we could launch a vehicle like this. It would be some sort of propco opco structure where you're aligning a theoretically less risky but lower return profile, which is investing in property. You're marrying that to a much higher risk, much higher potential return type of investment, which would be buying preferred equity in a company like Common or a company like WeWork. Have we launched a fund that does that yet? No. Are we constantly talking about it internally and what that would look like and meeting with our advisors about it? Yes. It's something where we we would like to be at the forefront of that evolution. When Metaprop and our competitors, collaborators first launched, you know, five years ago, you had Fitwall, Modern, Camber Creek, us, real estate technology ventures. That was considered a new thing to have sector specific fund for the property sector. It already happened in finance. It already happened in education, already happened in healthcare. It was sort of natural. But the next evolution is going to be investment vehicles that can participate nimbly between the operating businesses and the real estate. I don't know exactly what that looks like yet. Yeah, I, I think the interesting thing here, and we experienced this firsthand, a common that you're seeing with this new generation of tech-enabled operating platforms, you know, common falls in this list as do the co-working operators, as do companies that are making unique use of retail space, like Spacious, for instance, is that they're generating really two types of returns. They're generating the venture returns in the operating company, and then they're generating enhanced real estate returns in the underlying assets. And you and, and the investment landscape, to Zach's point, has not caught up with that. Because if you go talk to a large you know, asset manager, a large investment firm, I'm not talking about a VC, I'm talking about a group that has both kind of real estate and venture assets under management, those sit on totally different sides of the house and they haven't historically spoken to each other. You know, even large family offices, you have a couple of dudes who do real estate and then you have a couple of dudes who do venture. And, you know, other than over the water cooler, they don't interact. And now suddenly they're talking to a company like Common or a co-working operator And there's two ways to invest in this company that are synergistic. And you really want, at least, you know, given that they're participating in both those assets anyway, you want to participate on both sides. You want to have a stake in the venture, but you also want to be able to participate in the real estate returns that the venture is generating. So we we really, on the investment side, haven't gotten there yet where you have firms that are sufficiently integrated where they can make one decision to say, okay, we're going to bet on the operator and on the underlying assets. You see platforms that can get to those decisions, but it tends to require a lot of cross-departmental collaboration between the people who are making real estate bets and the people who are making venture bets, and they often talk different languages, and it's an uphill climb. Right. So, Brad, I'm curious if we can give uh, some advice or what we can learn from your story to the audience of you know, much of them are entrepreneurs and potentially, you know, evaluating whether they should build companies in prop tech or real estate tech space. What can we learn from your journey about, you know, post general assembly, thinking about what you want to do next and evaluating the prop tech uh, and real estate landscape. How did you settle on co-living as the place where you wanted to to make your mark? And were, were there any other ideas you explored or how did your idea evolve? Yeah. I mean, the, the fundamentals of coming up with a prop tech 
concept are the same as the fundamentals for embarking on any entrepreneurial journey. You have to find a need. You have to validate that need. You have to understand how that need isn't being met by the things already in the market. And then you go after it. And so it's, it's not that different than coming up with you know, a new SaaS model or a new you know, direct-to-consumer business. I, I would say the thing that really got me excited about prop tech and innovating in real estate is that over the last 10 to 15 years, you've seen a lot of incumbents in other industries really get very nimble and fast in terms of innovating, particularly if you're talking about kind of the mainstream tech players, you know, Amazon, Facebook, Apple, Google, et cetera. It's really tough to compete with them because they have a lot of, a lot of smart people. They move very quickly. They're very fast to kind of copy ideas that have risk of disrupting them. And, and you don't see that level of sophistication quite yet in real estate where the industry leaders look at it as essential to their you know, very being that they need to be innovative and they need to move quickly. It's, it's, that's still a controversial point in real estate. There's still a lot of people in real estate who say, you know what, I'm just going to sit on my assets and not really worry too much about this newfangled stuff. And if something takes off, then we'll, then we'll think about it at the time. Um, and I think that's a really good environment to innovate, to capture market share, to build something new, because you're not immediately fighting your incumbents from day one. You don't immediately have to worry about Amazon or Facebook copying your concept. So I think there are a lot of good fundamentals in real estate. There are a lot of landlords. There are a lot of big owners that are still typing up leases, like physically typing them up. And so you still have an industry that has not fully embraced a technology-led and driven future, which is a good thing for entrepreneurs that are trying to bring something new to the industry. So that's one area that, that, that kind of got me excited about real estate. And then you know, you're just dealing with like a, a very large pie. There are a lot of exciting things happening. There's a lot of capital moving around. There are a lot of fun puzzles to solve. Part of what Brad did, which all good entrepreneurs should be doing, is he, in his previous company, General Assembly, he noticed a major pain point that was tangentially relevant to what he was trying to do, where he had all these students, and correct me if I'm wrong, Brad, he had all these students in his, in his school who were taking these courses for like, let's say, three to six months at a time. And he saw firsthand how challenging it was for these people to find a place to live, sign a lease, and then find community, even if they were able to find a place to live and sign a traditional lease. And it was and out our, of that and pain our employees point. and our teachers yeah. it was beyond the students, but you're right. It was, it was out of that pain point that he decided to create common and then, but it's not just the pain point. Keep in mind, right? It's gotta be a pain point that's super painful and where there's money in the solution, right? So then he went out and then started doing all this research that he was saying and realized how fragmented it was and how antiquated it was, right? But he didn't set out and say, for my next company, I'm going to tackle the prop tech space. He started with a fundamental problem that he saw at his previous company and expanded from there, which I think is an important point. 
Totally. The reason why I asked earlier, uh, Zach, about how big the space is, knowing it's very big, is you mentioned earlier that it hadn't been, you know, hasn't been that many unicorns yet, and so certainly there haven't been, you know, hundred billion dollar companies in the space. But but because it is such a big space, my question to you is, what's it going to take for there to be a hundred billion dollar company in the space, and and where might that first first space be? The first hundred billion dollar company is is going to be an operator of real estate globally. It's going to fundamentally be a manager of property and or owner of property. I don't believe that a data company can grow to 100 billion in this specific industry necessarily. I think, you know, Zillow, CoStar, they still have room to grow, certainly. But it's going to be, if you look at the biggest companies in real estate, they are just not that big in terms of how they're valued. You know, if you went out and if you look at how CBRE or JLL and Christian Wakefield, those are all, those are the three biggest commercial real estate companies, services companies in the world. You know, for, for those to even grow to a hundred billion would be significant and challenging. So I don't know if a hundred billion dollar company ever emerges from this space, but I don't need a hundred million, a hundred billion dollar exit to satisfy my LPs. Right. Well, what was sort of, as you got deeper into real estate, what do you think has been the most surprising or, or challenging thing that you, that you learned that other entrepreneurs who get into the, into the space will, will have to wrestle with? Look, it, it's, it's not necessarily non-obvious, but, but real estate moves slowly. You know, when we take over a building, that might be the only building that our partner will open that year or even, you know, for a couple years. So they care an immense amount about the management of that building, the care that goes into that building. They're in many cases staking their careers on the success of that building. So we have to be kind of so high touch and so thoughtful about the underwriting process, about the operating plan. So it's very easy as a, as a, as a venture entrepreneur to get in your head all these big numbers and think, oh, okay, this is just another building. But you really have to look past that and understand how important that building is to your customer, which is the, the, the real estate owner and developer, and make sure that we're providing them with the, the, the best management experience. So you really have to have two sides of your head doing what we're doing. We're both building a consumer-facing brand, but we're also building a high-touch, high-quality management company. Zooming out a little bit, when you when people talk about, you know, if someone comes up to us and says they're going to compete with Facebook or someone says they're going to compete with Amazon, we'll sort of almost laugh or, or think, hey, you know, that, that's impossible because, you know, the switching costs of, of something like Facebook are so high and, and the data is so valuable and economy of scale of Amazon, et cetera. You know, Zach was talking about CBRE and JLL before. Is it possible that those are disruptable in the future or do those have similar moats? And if so, what are those moats? They have moats, but the moats are a fraction of what Facebook or Amazon's moats are. Just because it's, it's, it's fundamentally different dynamics in real estate. It's much more fragmented. It's much easier to gather together a number of sites, properties under management, a lot of data from the long tail. And in the aggregate, that is at least as large as the data set or asset base of a much larger company. So, and, and, and I think you've, you've seen this with, with, you know, uh, 
company like uh, an Open Door, for instance, focusing on a few specific markets and just gathering a huge amount of data on single-family home values that has enabled them to compete with much more institutional buyers and transactional partners for those single-family home deals. So in some ways, real estate has higher barriers to entry for everyone because it's just it tends to be very capital intensive. The players tend to be pretty slow and pretty conservative, but you don't have the same barriers to entry in real estate that you do in pure technology. And obviously, if you're building a real estate company, you have to understand that that cuts both ways. Um, you also have to be very, very, very thoughtful about the moats you're creating, lest someone come along and do the same thing to you. Totally. So you're building you know, an enormous uh, business in the co-living space, but if you weren't building Common and had to build another company in, in PropTech, or if you were sort of you know, uh, had a request for startups within PropTech that you could encourage other entrepreneurs listening to this of, hey, here's an opportunity that you might want to go explore, assuming they're the relevant skill sets, what, what might that opportunity be? Where do you want to see more innovation or experimentation within, within PropTech? Oh, man. I mean, there's still such a, a, a lack of decent technology tools in the property management landscape. Uh, you basically have a few vertically integrated players like Yardi and RealPage that you know, own the market. And you know, when, I, when we try to think about, okay, is there a good you know, email tool in prop tech that are similar to in functionality to some of, you know, the email tools that, you know, you have in e-commerce, for instance, it's a joke. So, you know, we're, we're still struggling with, with fundamental questions like, you know, how do you create, for instance, a, a, you know, permissioned communication system between us and our tenants. And, you know, we, we can solve this easy enough because we're a technology company, but the vast majority of huge property managers, you'd be shocked at how simplistic and poorly featured a lot of their property management functionality is. And I don't know if, if a lot of those businesses would be like venture backable in the traditional sense because you're really solving one or a few specific technology problems, but they certainly could be amazing cash flow businesses. Totally. Well, Brad, uh, I want to be sensitive to your time. This has been a great interview. For people who want to learn more about you and learn more about Common, where, where can you point them and what should they stay tuned for if, uh, if they want to live in a Common, if they want to work at Common? Yeah, just go to common.com. Um, you'll see all of, our, uh, all of our homes there and all of our, all of our openings. And if you just go down to the bottom of the page, there's a careers link. Um, and we're hiring for a number of roles today in uh, engineering and property management and functions across the organization. Awesome. Brad, thank you so much. It's been a great interview. Thanks. Happy to be here, Eric. Thanks for having me. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst.